Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. We're getting close to, uh, to the end of the book. Just a few more chapters. And this morning we find ourselves in Zechariah chapter 12. Um, most of my family, Maria and Amy so far, have been spared. So pray for them. We'll see. Everybody else had a stomach bug for the past week and a half, and it made life a little bit crazy. So there's no outline there in the worship guide, but there is a space to write down notes if that's helpful for you. So, so there that is, Zechariah chapter 12. Um, one thing that kids have to learn, and uh, if you have kids, they've probably asked you about this. Kids don't understand that there are multiple reasons to cry. So when kids are really young, they understand crying because you're sad. But for whatever reason, humans don't really cry for other reasons until a little bit later on. So I remember Nora being two, and we were in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was about to drive up to Maine to pastor the church there. And we were trying to sell our house, but it was taking a while to sell it. And we just felt like it was pretty clear I should go on up and start that work. And we should just trust the Lord that our house would sell. And praise the Lord, it did. And it only took a couple of weeks after I left. But I remember standing there outside the car and, and Maria about to take the kids to her parents' house and then me packing up the car to go to Maine and really not knowing when I was going to see Maria and the kids, at that point, just Nora and Jude, not knowing when I was going to see them again. So cried a decent amount there standing at the car. And, and Nora understood that. You know, she said, Dad, why are you crying? And, and I could explain it. But then I remember a few weeks later when we sold our house and I got to fly down to Indiana to get my family and drive them up to Maine all together, seeing them in the airport crying. And that's where Nora was confused because she was saying, wait, this is a good thing. Dad, why are you crying? And having to explain to her, well, sometimes humans cry when there's good things, right? There's different kinds of crying. Well, we see there's this play on this word, this idea of mourning in our passage in Zechariah and in the way it's picked up in the New Testament, in two of the verses that we've already read in our gathering so far this morning. There's these different kinds of mourning, a mourning for God's people as we look at our Savior and a mourning for God's enemies as they'll look at the Savior when he returns one day on the day of judgment. And that's really what this passage is about. But, but real quick, let's, uh, let's remind ourselves what's going on and kind of catch ourselves up with, with Zechariah, where it is in history. So remember, God's people had been exiled by God. They were in the promised land, but then God had exiled them out of the promised land. The Babylonians had come and sacked the southern, uh, southern kingdom of Israel, what's called Judah, and took them away into captivity in, uh, in Babylon because of their sin. But because God is so gracious, he had brought them back in. So that's when the book of Zechariah, that's when these prophecies are taking place. God's people, at least the southern kingdom, they're back in the promised land because of the grace of the Lord. But remember, the people were discouraged because it wasn't like it was before. There was no temple. It was starting to be built, but it wasn't completed yet. There was no king. There was no monarchy yet. They were still under, uh, under this other nation. Um, all of God's people weren't yet back in the promised land. And then there were nations around Israel that were doing their best to ensure that Israel did not succeed. So in all sorts of different ways, they were, they were trying to hurt and, and harm Israel. And 
God's people still had their sin to deal with. That's part of what we looked at last week in Zechariah chapter 11. So, so over and over again, God is using the prophet Zechariah to encourage the people. They were discouraged. This was a hard situation. But over and over again, he's encouraging them. And he, he's encouraging them basically with two main truths that we've seen over and over again in Zechariah. God will punish the enemies of his people. That, that day is coming. And he will save his people. Ultimately, he will give them salvation. Those are really the two things that over and over again, God has been saying to his people throughout the book of, of Zechariah. Well, our passage this morning has those same two truths. God's going to judge the enemies of his people, and he's going to bring salvation, full salvation to his people. But he does something new in the second part of this verse. So what verse 1 calls this is is a second oracle, which is just a pronouncement God makes about this future day when everything will be made right. The new piece here is God tells his people how he's going to save them how he's going to save them. That's what we're going to look at in in the second half of of the passage. But we'll start where our passage does with this promise about the the coming day in the future when God will judge the enemies of his people. And it's our first main point this morning, which is a warning to the world. And that is this. If you try to hurt God's people, you're the one who will end up hurt. That's the first point we're going to see here. If you try to hurt God's people, you will end up being hurt. Look at verse 2. He says, behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. Okay, so this is going to pick up a theme that's going to go throughout these first couple of verses. Here's what's interesting. God doesn't say, he's not, he's not active here. It's not God who's on the attack. So with the, the, he says, behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples peoples. The the picture isn't that God is going out and he's going to spike the drinks that are in their houses and sort of poison their drinks in their homes. No, he's saying these enemies are going to come and try to drink out of the cup of Israel. So the nations are coming to God's people looking for trouble. Look at the next metaphor, verse 3. He says, on that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. So same thing, right? It's not a stone God is throwing at the nations. No, he's saying these enemy nations are going to come to God's people and try to pick her up like a stone. The nations are coming to God's people looking for trouble. Look at the next metaphor, verse 6. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples. So same thing. The picture isn't that God's people are lighting arrows on fire and shooting them into the enemy nations. No, the picture is the enemy nations are coming all around Israel, getting close to the fire of the nation. They're, they're coming looking for trouble. And, and trouble is exactly what these enemies will find. When they try to hurt God's people, what they find is is that they will be hurt. So for the nation coming to do evil to Israel and drink from that cup, verse 2 says, they will walk away staggering. For for the one coming to to lift God's people and do them harm, verse 3 says, they will hurt themselves. 
For the one moving in on them in verse 6, we're told they'll be devoured. They'll be burned down. So, so the point here with all of this is, is that God didn't start this fight. So these are enemy nations that are coming attacking God's people. He didn't start that fight. The, the fight started with humanity attacking God. And that's really the story of the Bible. So the attack comes from outside. The fight starts not with God. The fight starts with mankind rebelling against the Lord. That happens all the way back in Genesis 3. Listen to the way the author of, of Ecclesiastes says it. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29. God made man upright, but they, mankind, but they have sought out many schemes. So God made man upright, but then man deviated and attacked the Lord and rebelled. And mankind has been attacking God and God's people ever since. So this is Psalm 2, verse 1. This is the way Psalm 2, 1 says it. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So, so when it comes to the conflict between man and God, man is the one that started that fight and has been fighting that fight ever since Genesis 3. Look at the end of verse 3 in our passage. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it, against God's people. So mankind started the fight. And that's what we see here in our passage. But God will finish the fight. So look at verse 4. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. So the picture is, is that as the cavalry comes, he makes those horses crazy and he makes their riders crazy, strikes them with panic. They won't be able to fight. At the end of verse four, we're told, we're told God will strike every horse of the people with blindness. So when people come and attack God's people, God won't let that stand. He, he will win that fight. Look down at verse 9. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So God's enemies start the fight, but God finishes it. That seems the pattern that we're supposed to see here pretty clearly. Now, now this, this oracle, this pronouncement that we have in chapter 12, it's published for two main groups. And every human is in one of these two groups. You know, first of all, the, the oracle is for the enemies of God's people. So surely chapter 12 was written in part to be announced to the enemies of God's people. Hey, if you guys keep tangling with God's people, you're going to be the ones that get hurt. God's, God's not going to stand for this. So it's for his enemies. So in the Old Testament, that means all of Israel's enemies. And then from the book of Acts on, it means all of the enemies of the church of Jesus Christ, the people who are connected to Jesus. And what this oracle is saying to the enemies of God's people is, you're going to lose. If you start this fight, God will finish it and you will lose. So we can think about it in, in practical terms. And you could probably think of lots of, of other examples, but I'll give a few. So for the professor of religion at Wake Forest or UNC or a hundred other colleges that we could go to, whose mission in part in those religion classes is to get kids to not believe in the authority of scripture, 
and to say, no, these are just writings of religious people from a long time ago. We've moved past this. Or for those professors that would say, Jesus may have been a good moral example. He certainly didn't rise from the dead. And there's no way that he's God. That's foolish. Put that behind you. For, for professors like that, they have started the fight, but unless they repent, God will end it. God will eventually punish the enemies of God's people. Or for the city council that, that makes it more difficult for churches to buy land in their district because they disagree with those Christians believing what the Bible says about sexual ethics, that's a thing that, praise the Lord, I, I don't hear too much about happening in this area of North Carolina. It happens in parts of North Carolina, but it happens in lots of other places uh, throughout the country. For that city council, they, they started the fight, but God will eventually finish it. For the supervisor at work that, that maybe keeps you from being promoted because your conscience doesn't allow you to say that a boy is a girl or to say that a girl is a boy, Supervisors like that, if they don't repent, they started the fight, but, but eventually God will, will finish it. Now, that doesn't mean God will remedy situations like that in this life. You know, we, we don't have that promise, but it does mean he'll remedy it on the day of judgment. When Christ returns, he will make all of that right. To, to use the imagery of our passage, enemies like that come to the church to drink the cup, but, but God will end up poisoning that drink. They come to lift the church up and, and throw it like a stone. God will make the church so heavy that, that they'll end up hurting their back. The way Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail against the church. So at, at the day of the Lord, when Christ returns, all of his people's enemies, they will be fully and finally judged. Verse 9, again in our passage, And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Well, the, the second group meant to hear that oracle, not just the enemies of God's people, but also God's people. We are supposed to be encouraged by that truth, the truth that one day God will judge all the church's enemies. And, and we can have confidence that that will happen because God is the one who says he will do it. So, so look at verse 2. We're going to go through a, a, a lot of verses here, and we're going to look and see the emphasis is on God's activity in all of these things. So look at verse 2. He says, Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. Look at verse 3. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. Verse 4, on that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic. Verse 5, then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. Verse 7, and the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah. Verse 8, on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 9, and on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So God is committed to this. He will see to it that our enemies are one day defeated. He will protect his people. And, and here's one practical application of that truth. 
One practical application of the truth that God will one day destroy your enemies as a Christian, my enemies as a Christian, it means that as Christians, we don't have to be concerned with revenge. We don't have to be concerned with revenge. Listen to the way Paul says it. Romans 12, verse 19. A good verse to think about if you're tempted to avenge yourself on somebody who hurts you. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. We don't have to try to get justice for ourselves. We don't have to attack somebody else because they've attacked us. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Why? You can leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So if there was no universal judge, then, then it, it would feel right, right? For, for us to have the impetus, for us to be responsible to, to hurt somebody who's hurt us. So if they're unjust to us in this life, then, then we try to hurt them back. But see, there is a universal judge, and in the end, he will make all things right. So we don't have to avenge ourselves. We can leave it to the wrath of God on the day of judgment to make everything right. Verse 9 in our passage again, And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So God will ultimately defeat all of his people's enemies. Now, now the question is, do you believe that? And do I believe that? Do, do we really believe it? Do we really believe that one day God's enemies will experience defeat? And God's people will be fully and, and finally saved. God's enemies, they certainly don't believe anything I've just said, right? They would scoff at that. They don't believe it. So, so why should we believe it? Well, the Lord gives us a couple of reasons at the very beginning of our passage for why we should believe that this really is going to happen. He really will punish his enemies. He really will save his people. Look at verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So, so the point in what follows is the one who makes these promises is the one who, verse 1 reminds us, created everything. The one who makes these promises is the one who created everything. He stretched out the heavens and founded the earth, we're told. That's the very first verse in the Bible, right? Makes that truth clear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when you drove to church this morning, everything you saw, the grass and the sky and the animals and the sun and the clouds, God made all of it. Don't let that be lost on us. We talk about that a lot. We know it, right? Of course, God created everything. But think about it. He created everything. He came up with all those things in his mind. Those things weren't there before. Nobody had ever seen grass. Nobody had ever seen sky. Nobody had ever seen mountains or animals. He came up with all of it in his wisdom, and he created all of it, produced it with his words. And he didn't just create the inanimate world and animals. He also created human life. That's what the end of verse 1 is getting at when it says, he formed the spirit of man with him. So remember how Genesis 2, 7 says it. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God, God breathed the spirit into man. He, he created our souls. Now, for the God who created everything we can see, and even your soul inside of you, which you can't see, is anything too hard for him? 
Is any word that he makes too hard for him to fulfill? Of course not. No, he will fulfill all of these words. He has unbridled power. So on that future day, God will defeat all of his people's enemies. If someone tries to hurt God's people, they will be the one who ends up hurt. And there are situations where it could be helpful as a Christian to tell somebody that, somebody in authority in particular. There have been times where I have imagined, I didn't imagine it until we, uh, you, don't, you don't think of yourself running into a senator or a U.S. representative or, you know, a president. We got on an airplane one time to fly, I think from Charlotte back to Maine, and uh, there was a, a Maine senator that was there. She was sitting two rows in front of us, right? And I remember at that point thinking, okay, if I did run into somebody like that and had the opportunity to speak to them, what would I tell them? And depending on the person, I think one thing is, well, regardless of the person, thank you for serving in this way. It sounds horrible to be in politics. Praise the Lord, people are willing to do it. I don't wanna go anywhere close to that. So I would thank them. But there are some politicians where then I would say, but you've got to understand you're under the authority of the God of the universe. And, and one of the chief things that you want to have in mind every morning when you wake up is I don't want to make it any more difficult for God's people to be faithful to Christ than, than, than needs to be. I don't want to make that difficult at all. I don't want to oppose the Lord in that way. There are times where it's appropriate to say something like that to somebody in authority. It's certainly true. If someone tries to hurt God's people, they'll be the one who ends up hurt. Okay, well, well once all of these enemies are defeated, this is the second part of what Zechariah keeps doing. God will judge his enemies, but he'll save his people. And that's where he goes next. Look at what's in store for us as God's people, verse 8. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. Okay, so he's giving us just this brief picture of how good heaven will be. Only spends a couple sentences on it, but, but it's an incredible thing. In, in the future kingdom of heaven, everyone will be at full strength, at full health, because there, there's no sin there. So, so for the people hearing this prophecy in Judah, the feeblest among them is the word he uses there. The feeblest among them will be as healthy and as provided for as the king. Now that's an incredible promise. At, at the day of the Lord, finally, we will be fully saved and kept in a place for all eternity where there's no sickness or, or sadness or death because we'll be in a place where there is no sin. And just think about that for a second. It's so great when, when the Bible gives us verses where we can actually kind of hang flesh on it and think about it in a, in a different way. You could now, you can recall to mind, do it now, people that you know that trust in the Lord. So think about all the Christians you know. Who is the most feeble right now? Who is the person that is at the weakest point physically? You could probably think of a few of them. You can imagine that person in your head. In heaven, if you could see him, him or her now, if you could go forward and see them in heaven, they would look like the healthiest person you have ever seen in your life. Is that not incredible to think about that? That's how different heaven will be from this world. And everything else in heaven will be ratcheted up just like that. The, the way Jonathan Edwards says it, he was a pastor in New England in the 18th century. 
He talks about heaven will be so much better than this life. It'll be like if, if you saw the noonday sun here in heaven, that would look like nighttime. Not a good picture. So noonday sun here, that's heaven's version of the middle of the night. Everything will be ratcheted up. Everything will be better because there won't be any sin there. Our, our best day here will pale in comparison to the kind of true full life in Christ that awaits us there. And, and that's the reason why we don't have to love this world, which is good. It'll hurt us if we love this world. That won't end up being good for us because this world will let us down, right? I had so many plans for this past week. Being off work, the kids being out of school, all these great things we were gonna do, a lot of college football on, praise the Lord. Lots of food that we were gonna eat. And then in an instant, sin in this world got into our household in the form of a stomach bug and it ruined a lot of those plans. That's what happens in this world. Regularly because of sin, this world will let us down. But as Christians, we don't have to love this world. We're freed from loving this world because we're headed to a much better one. And it's so kind of the Lord to give us passages like this to, to remind us how good heaven will be. So, so God is going to save his people. But the question is, how can anyone be saved? So, so he talks about here's this salvation. He's going to judge his enemies. But when we really think about it, we understand, but wait. It doesn't really make sense that I go in the saved category. It makes much more sense that I go in the enemy category because of my sin. How, how can anybody be saved? We saw it in our passage last week. God's people are still sinners. So the first part of our passage, the part about God's enemies being judged, that makes complete sense to us, right? Okay, got it. Sinners, enemies of the Lord, they're judged. Okay, makes sense. But how do we make sense of sinners being saved? That's the part that doesn't make any sense, right? You may have heard this before, but, but people will talk about the problem of evil, right? There's a good God, but then there's, there's bad things and trouble in this life. There's not really a problem of evil. There's much more of a problem of good. Why is there anything good in this world? We've rebelled against the Lord. We don't deserve anything good. So how can we be saved? Remember the imagery we saw of the heavenly city of God back in chapter five? God, God will end up taking all the sin and sinners in the world and stuffing them in a basket and two angels carry it away outside of heaven. That's the imagery we're given there. Well, you deserve to be in that basket. You're a sinner. I deserve to be in that basket. We, we don't deserve to be in heaven. So how can anybody be saved? How, how is the Christian sitting here this morning getting into heaven? Well, the second half of our passage tells us and what we see is that it's, it's ultimately God who pays for the sins of his people. And it's our final point this morning. God will save his people by being pierced for their sins. God will save his people by being pierced for their sins. Look at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Okay, this passage, 
would have raised a lot of eyebrows in Israel. So Old Testament believers, they would not have known what to do with this entirely. So the fact that here in verse 10, who, who is it who's speaking? Well, it's the Lord. Okay, so the same, the same first person, I, who's been talking throughout chapter 12, he, he's still the one talking in verse 10. But there's something God says about himself that Israel did not have a category for, that they had never seen before or thought about. God says he will be pierced. And that's the thing that the Old Testament saint would have said, I don't know what that means. God, the God of the universe, will be pierced. Because God is God. He, he can't be hurt. He can't be touched by his enemies. You might remember Psalm 37 verse 13 says God laughs at the wicked. That, that's how close the wicked can get to hurting God. They can bring all the attacks they want. He laughs. They're, 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 he's at no risk of being harmed by them. So how can God be pierced? Well, it's only if he allows himself to be pierced. And that's exactly what would happen about 500 years after Zechariah is giving this prophecy. Listen to part of our New Testament reading this morning. So after Jesus' death on the cross, we're told this, John 19, verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. And this is verse 36. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, this is ours, they will look on him whom they have pierced. The crucifixion of Jesus is the fulfillment of this mysterious verse in Zechariah 12. The, the cross of Christ is where God was pierced. Let's take a minute to, to notice that, that this verse, coupled with John 19, makes it clear that Jesus is God. So, so you might come up against somebody from an aberrant view of Christianity that would say, yeah, I believe everything you believe, except I don't think Jesus is God. I think he was just a really good creation. That's not Christianity, by the way. There's no gospel in that. But there's lots of places you could take them this is, this is one of them, probably that doesn't get as much airtime. In Zechariah, who is the one that says he will be pierced? It's clearly God. In John 19, who is the one who was pierced? It's clearly Jesus. Jesus is God. And we can be reminded about why Jesus had to be pierced to save God's people from their sins. It, it starts with the fact that someone had to be pierced. So you and I are sinners. Those sins have to be paid for. Even this morning we've sinned. Tomorrow we're going to sin. Those sins have to be paid for, either by us in eternal judgment or by somebody else on our behalf. But somebody has to be pierced for your transgressions. That's the way Isaiah 53 verse 5 says it. But it can't be an animal. Right? Animals were just sort of holding places. It was almost like paying the minimum payment on a credit card, but you have to pay off that balance at some point. An animal can't be subbed in to take the place of a person. We understand that doesn't fit. No, it, it has to be a human to take our place, but we know it has to be a perfect sacrifice. 
It has to be a perfect human. But like Jesus says in Mark 10, no one is good but God alone. But God alone. So if there's going to be a sacrifice, it has to be God to do it. He's the only one who can make the perfect sacrifice. And since it requires it to be a human, God needed to take on human nature. That's who Jesus is. That's the gospel. God had to be pierced to pay for our sins. See, that's the mystery that was finally revealed at the cross of Christ. How can sinners truly have their sins covered for all eternity? And how could God's suffering possibly provide for it? The answer is the cross. But, but for God's people to be saved, for you to be saved, for me to be saved, more was required than just Jesus dying for sins. We know that because Jesus died for sins. His sacrifice is available to everybody in the world, right? If everybody would turn, repent of sin, and believe, they would all be saved. Hell would have a population of zero in terms of humans. Everybody would be in heaven. But everybody isn't saved, right? Jesus had to die for sins, but people also have to respond to his death. If, if you're a Christian, then you know the response that's required. Jesus sums it up in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe. That's the response that's required for somebody's sins to be covered by the blood of Christ. A sinner has to repent, right, to hate their sin, to desire to turn from it, and, and to believe, to place faith in Jesus, to pay for those sins, to put their hope in Christ. And here's how gracious God is. It's an incredible thing. He doesn't only provide the sacrifice for sins, he also provides the heart you needed to respond to the sacrifice for sins. And that's something we need because on our own, our heart would have never repented for sin and it would have never turned to Christ. Isn't that incredible? You can probably not think about that too much. That is a good thing for Christians to think about. So I, apart from the Lord meddling with my heart, I would have never repented of sin. I would have never trusted in Jesus. The human heart on its own will always turn away from the Lord. Ecclesiastes 7.29, again, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. In the fall of man in Genesis 3, the human heart was thrust down into darkness. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So ever since Genesis 3, no human heart would ever come to the Lord unless the Lord changed that human heart. To use the language of verse 10, no one would ever plead for mercy because of their sins. But because our God is so incredibly gracious, he decided to save a group of sinners for himself. Look again at the promise God makes in verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. So you see what God is doing there? He's promising to give his people a heart that mourns for sin a heart that's sensitive to the fact that they've turned away from the Lord. He, he's going to give them a heart that will be repentant. 
And we're told that after he has transformed them, his people will plead for mercy. And they'll plead for mercy from the one whom they have pierced, who is Jesus Christ. That's the exact response that leads to salvation. A sinner has to plead for mercy for sins from God through Jesus Christ. Somebody has to repent and believe. That's exactly what God provides. Isn't that incredible? He could have sent his son to die for sins, but if he didn't do this second thing, it wouldn't matter to you. You would have continued to reject Jesus until the day you died. The only way you could have been saved was if he did both these things sent Christ to pay for your sins, for him to be pierced on our behalf, and to give you a new heart that would repent of sin and come to Christ. God really is responsible for all of our salvation, all of it. So you may have heard the term before, reformed, reformed theology or a reformed church. Somebody might even ask you like, hey, I've heard your church is reformed. What does that mean? This is basically it. God's responsible for all of our salvation. That's what it is to be reformed, is to tell somebody, the only reason I know Jesus is God. He did it all from start to finish. He even had to give me the heart I needed to love Jesus and to turn from my sins. So praise the Lord for that. It's all his work. But one good application, I was thinking about this yesterday, it, it kind of hits you between the eyes. If you're a Christian, do you continue to respond to your sin with a repentant heart? The way that we see in this passage, do you continue to respond to your sin with a repentant heart? We're, we're not only supposed to repent of sin at the beginning of the Christian life. The entire Christian life is supposed to be marked by repentance for sin, regularly coming to Christ in faith. And more specific even than that, than repentance generally, do you feel bad about your sin? I think we hear that question and we think, well, of course I do, right? Yeah, I feel bad for my sin. But I remember sitting in bed yesterday and really thinking about it. Do I feel bad? Do I have an emotional response? Do I feel bad because of my sin? You know, think about that term mourn. It's used five times in these closing verses. Do you mourn for your sin? Do you feel the weight of it? The, the comparison the Lord gives through the prophet Zechariah in verse 10 is that our mourning for sin should be comparable to the mourning of losing a child. Now that will hit you between the eyes, won't it? Isn't that wild? That's the comparison that he makes here. Look at the end of verse 10. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. That is intense, isn't it? God is not pulling any punches with us. We should feel the burden of our sin. There should be an emotional response that accompanies it. But if you hear this and you are convicted, praise God if you hear this and you're convicted, the way that I feel convicted, if you're like me, oftentimes you don't mourn for your sin, our passage gives us the biggest key to help, a way that, that we can really kind of turn it on its head and think about this the right way. We have to see our sin as an attack on Jesus. That's the key. If you want to mourn for your sin, if I want to mourn for my sin, we have to see our sin as an attack on Jesus. It's not just disobedience to some abstract rule 
If we look at it that way, then it becomes almost like a speed limit. Like, okay, this road, it says 45. That's because a bureaucrat said, yeah, I guess let's make it 45, right? It's sort of abstract, it's set apart. No, when we sin, it's an attack on Jesus. Middle of verse 10. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. We mourn for our sin because our sin is against our Savior. We pierce Jesus with our disobedience. So just, just to get really practical, when we tear someone down with our words, or when we love money, or, or when we gossip, we realize those sins of ours are, are the sins that put Jesus on the cross to die. So hopefully you can see this, how, how personalizing our sin will make it easier to mourn for it. We, we pierce Jesus with our sin. And, and we can evaluate that on, on a corporate level too. As a church, we want to mourn for sin in this, in this same way. We, we should obviously mourn when something difficult happens in the world. In fact, there's, there's a list, a prayer list on the back of the, the worship guide that we use on Wednesday nights. One of those categories is to pray for families that are grieving the loss of loved ones. That's a good thing to, to pray for. We should mourn for those losses. We should also ask the question as a church, are we just as marked by mourning for our sin? That's a good thing to think about. Let, let's pray that would be the case. But, but as we close, we should notice this interesting play on the word mourning. It's what I talked about at the very beginning of the sermon. There's this interesting play, this dynamic between that, that concept of mourning between our passage in Zechariah and then the quotation of our passage in John and in Revelation. So, so who is it in our passage in Zechariah that will look on Jesus and mourn? It's God's people. It's Christians, those who will repent. They look on him whom they've pierced. Okay, but in John 19 that Mark read earlier, who are the ones there that are mourning when they look at Jesus? Well, it's the soldiers. It's his enemies. Or what about Revelation chapter 1, verse 7? It's the other spot. Our passage is quoted in the New Testament. It was, it was our congregational reading. This is what it says there. Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Well, the people wailing in that passage in Revelation are Jesus' enemies. So, so you see, every human will end up mourning for the one who was pierced. The only question is, will somebody mourn in their life by mourning over their sin and trusting in Christ, or will they mourn at Jesus' return when they realize they're about to be judged for their sins against the God of the universe, and it's too late? And that's why if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what we're praying for you is that you would mourn now, that you would turn to Christ now, bring him your sin now, mourn for your sin against the Lord, feel the weight of it, desire to turn from it, trust in Christ to pay for it, and not mourn later when Christ returns to judge, but because everyone will mourn one way or another. Look at the final verses in our passage, verse 12 and following. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, 
the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. That seems a little bit redundant, doesn't it? It's a lot of by themselves, but that's just the point. Everybody will mourn one way or another. This is significant for us, especially if you're a young person here or the parent of a young person who can help to take this lesson home. If, if you're a young person here right now, that, that probably means you were brought here by your family, which most likely means you have parents that are Christians. Praise the Lord for that, by the way. That is a great gift. But here's what you need to understand, and as parents, we need to help our kids understand. We will all have to mourn one way or another. We will all have to stand before the Lord individually. So on the day of judgment, Cornerstone Baptist Church won't be called up before the Lord and we all go up together. No, you, me, on our own, will stand before the Lord. And if you're a young person, you won't stand before the Lord with your parents. You'll stand before the Lord on your own. The way Paul says it in Galatians 6 verse 5 is each person will have to bear his own load. Your dad will stand before the Lord by himself. Your mom will stand before the Lord by herself. And you will stand before the Lord by yourself. And that means that even if you grow up in this church and hear the gospel and take part in the things of God's people, you still have to repent and believe. You still have to mourn for your sin. You still have to bring that sin to Jesus Christ to be made right before the Lord. So, so that's what this passage is, is about. Everyone will mourn. Everyone will mourn individually. But it's an incredible thing that even though it would be entirely fair for all of us to be in the mourn when Jesus comes category and be punished as his enemies, in his grace and as his, in his kindness, he's given us new hearts where we were able to, to mourn in this day for our sin and come to trust in Christ, the one who was pierced for our sins so we could be saved. Verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Let's pray together. And Father, we are, we are so thankful that you have made a way for all of our sins to be covered. Father, we're so thankful that Christ was pierced on our behalf. We pray that we would never lose the, the awe and the joy and the incredible nature of that event and that truth. Father, we, we pray that we would prize that and love it more and more every day, we also pray we would hate our sin more and more every day. Father, we pray that you would grow us all where more regularly we are mourning for our sin. True mourning, true bitterness that we feel because of piercing our good Savior. Father, would you work that heart in us? We, we understand from this passage, you're the one that has to give us that heart. So we pray that you would be the one to come into our heart and transform it more and more to give us more and more of a mourning for our sin. Make that a reality in this church corporately, Father, where when people come in from the outside, they would say, those people love Jesus and they hate their sin. 
We pray that that would be characteristic of us for our good and for the glory of the one who was pierced on our behalf. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.